So tonight, I'm excited to bring you licensed marriage and family therapist, Matt Bishop. Uh, Matt works at Soul Care House. Uh, some of you guys might know what, what that is uh, up in uh, Mission Hills, correct? And um, they do therapy for uh, couples, individuals on trauma, anxiety, depression, addiction, play therapy for kids, and art therapy. And Matt's story uh, includes moving from really deep personal brokenness to a place where he is embracing authenticity as a, as a way of, of healing. And uh, I'm really excited about what he's got for us tonight. So Matt specializes in uh, recovering uh, from sexual addiction, overcoming personal and family secrets, depression, apathy, homeless, uh, hopelessness, social, vocational, relational anxiety, trauma, and helping uh, couples reconnect after losing trust. So I'm excited about the care and wisdom you're gonna bring Matt. So thank you very much. Welcome, Matt. Thank you all. Uh, interesting listening to that. Do I really do all that stuff? Guess so. Um, thank you all for having me so much. Um, I'm excited to be here. Uh, like I said, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist at Soul Care House. Um, we're located up here in Mission Hills and all of the above services we offer. We also have an event space. Um, we built a barn out back, so we do workshops and events groups as well. And um, we just started doing retreats. So um, if you're in the market for therapy or um, just want someone to walk alongside you on that journey, um, please be sure to check us out. A um, little bit about me. I was born and raised here in San Diego. Um, lived west of the five for most of my life. Went to San Diego State and then on to national uh, for my master's in marriage and family therapy. I'm currently at Grand Canyon University working on my doctorate. Um, and I'm doing some research there on um, how female clergy make mental health referrals and what their process is for that. Um, some pretty cool stuff. Uh, female clergy tend to be a lot better at identifying mental illness um, and mental unwellness um, than their male counterparts, but they don't really have the opportunity to make a lot of referrals because um, they, be, they tend to be kind of at the bottom of the totem pole in many cases. And so um, if we can kind of empower them to be in more authoritative positions, we might have healthier church communities. So that's kind of the uh, research that I'm doing there. I love to geek out on that. If you want to ask me about it more, uh, I can go on and on. But that's not why I'm here today. Um, uh, I actually find myself here today because I knew Mike Forrest, who's not here right now. Um, but uh, we were baristas at Pete's Coffee together uh, about 12 years ago when I was in my undergrad. Um, we worked uh, opening shifts at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, and I would listen to him complain about how bad the Chicago Bears are. And um, so long hours, underpaid, working with difficult people. Um, but now he's in ministry, so all that's changed. Um, yeah. Uh, so today we're talking, there he is. I just made a joke about you. Uh, <laughs> uh, so today we're talking about resiliency. Um, it's a topic I'm quite passionate about. Um, I think in our, uh, in our culture, there's kind of been a necessary swing towards um, sensitivity and accommodation and um, realizing that not everyone kind of falls within um, uh, the main line of um, white straight males. And so there's kind of have been this push for safe spaces and really recognizing that not everyone um, is uh, typical in their, um, in their demographics or their life, right? And so, um, but I feel like there's been an, uh, an, over, uh, there's been an overcorrection of that. And now we have kind of this... Um, this cultural phenomena of um, really emphasizing safe spaces and demanding that every environment fit someone perfectly. And if you ever feel uncomfortable, then you need the world to change around you. And there's kind of been an overcorrection in that. 
And so what resiliency is, instead of creating a safe space, we want to start building brave spaces where we realize that we may feel uncomfortable and how do we work through that uh, in order to uh, be our best selves regardless of what external threats we may experience or feeling anxious or depressed or lonely. We're not going to ask um, the world to change for us, but we develop the character traits needed to really thrive. Um, one of my favorite quotes is, prepare your child for the road, not the road for the child. Uh, and so we need to learn how to have resiliency in relationships as well, um, whether that's uh, an intimate relationship with your partner, um, work relationships, friendships, things like that. Uh, we can't just tap out when things get rough. We have to understand how to work through those things if we're going to have healthy and thriving relationships. So what is resiliency? It's, uh, in a broad sense, it's just the ability for an object um, or a substance to spring back into shape into form. Uh, a few months ago, I was asked to give a uh, workshop at another church here in town, and uh, I wanted to drive up to Julian to prepare for it. So my wife and I went up there. We have a really cool, awesome dog, and he's going to run around up there, and then I was going to kind of find a coffee shop to hunker down on and, and work on this workshop. Come to think of it, they haven't invited me back, so I wonder how that went. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, we're just having a good time. We're driving up to Julian. Um, uh, connecting, laughing, having fun, enjoying each other. And uh, a song comes on through my iPhone on, on, on the show, I mean, on the, on the radio, and um, I don't really like it, so I reach for my phone to, uh, to change it. And so I reach for my phone. My wife has a pretty strict no text and driving policy, which I am completely an advocate for. But in my opinion, changing the song is not in the same category as texting and driving, right? That's not the function. I'm, not, I'm just going on there to maybe press a button. So I reached for my phone, and immediately she goes, I can do it. Can I have it? Let me, see, let me see it. I think I got it. I'll be fine. No, really, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. So in my mind, how my chimpanzee brain decided to interpret that was that I was unreliable, not trustworthy, uh, that I was endangering her, that I was acting irresponsibly, and that uh, I wasn't... I wasn't qualified to be in control of that situation, so she's going to take over. So um, here I am on, go, going to do a workshop on marriage, right, on, on healthy and thriving marriages. And my wife and I get in this lovely, lovely argument about how she just needs to trust me and that she's anxious all the time, and I'm the jerk because I just won't be considerate of her, and why can't I just really, it's just a, a phone, why can't I just surrender that and let her change the station? And... Uh, totally sent us into a funk. Um, we got up there, I went for a walk, came back, eventually worked through it, right? But resiliency is the ability to snap back into a posture of connection, caring, compassion, and confidence. Four C's is what we say, kind of healthy, healthy relationships. So how do I go from being uh, frustrated, irritated, feeling disrespected, feeling like my pride is hurt, feeling like I want distance, back to... Uh, being caring, connected, confident, and compassionate. That's what we're talking about resiliency, the ability to snap back into form, into that healthy posture that God wants us to be in. So what happens when we're bent out of shape? You can go to the next slide, please. So um, we're going to get a little sciencey here, and I'm just going to say we have an upstairs brain and we have a downstairs brain. The, up, the downstairs brain is called our amygdala, and it's a God-given uh, part of our brain, which activates when we feel threatened. 
Um, when we feel endangered, when we feel like uh, we're not safe, um, God gave us this thing called amygdala to say, hey, you're not safe. And we can cope in one of three ways. And it's very kind of popularized now if you've read any books on attachment or a book called How We Love. We're, we're, it pretty much tells us to fight, run, or freeze. And typically, we're going to fall into one of these three categories ourselves. When we feel threatened or when we are in an argument, we may be more of a fighter, right? We're going to be more argumentative. We're going to be more um, uh, pursuing. I, we're not going to go to bed until we figure this out. We may be a runner or a fleer where we just avoid and we don't want to talk about it. Or we could be a freezer and we just shut down and it's really confusing for our partner, but we don't really even know what's going on. And like a possum who just plays dead, we just hope this get, gets over with, right? Uh, my wife likes to say that I am a combination between a fighter and a fleer because I'll do this thing where I'll say like, that's it, I've had it. And I'll walk away and then she'll just count down like three, two, and another thing. I'll come back, right back into the room. So I think I have both of like fighter and, and flair in, in me. So there's no reason to, uh, to make the, the amygdala the bad guy, but it's kind of like if you all have ever seen Captain Phillips um, where the Somalian pirates kind of take over the ship, the amygdala, when the amygdala feels threatened, it kind of looks at the rest of the brain and it's like, I'm the captain now. I'm in charge. We are, this is not a safe place. And, and the function of the amygdala is to keep us alive. It is not to help us problem solve. It is not to help us come up with creative solutions. It is not, the function of it is not to collaborate. It's not, there's no creativity. It's out of our language center. So if you ever feel flustered when you're in an argument, that's because if you, put, if you hooked up an fMRI scanner to your brain, there wouldn't be a lot of action going on in the language center. It would all be back here in the amygdala because just be safe. Um, fight, flight, or free. freeze. If you want a good example for what it's like to be in the amygdala, you can go on Facebook and look at the comments when people argue about politics or turn on Fox News or CNN, and it's just a bunch of people operating out of their amygdalas, and there's no collaboration. It's just survive, beat your opponent, win. And we can find ourselves in that way in our relationships when we're arguing. So healthy conflict is when we're listening well, taking a non-defensive posture, believing the best in our partner and empathizing. We're operating out of our right supermarginal gyrus, which we're just going to call our upstairs brain. So we have our downstairs brain and our upstairs brain. And when we're coming up with solutions to problems and empathizing with our partners, we're in our upstairs brain. And resiliency is this transition from this ability to move out of our dancer's brain and into our upstairs brain and come up with solutions to our problems, to listen, to take a non-defensive posture where we don't feel like we're being threatened. If you think of it like a train track that diverges and goes to two paths, um, what we want to do is we want to develop the ability where the portable part of the train track moves over to the upstairs brain and away from the amygdala. And so we're going to talk about today what we can do to move that lever from feeling flustered and angry and defensive and all those things into feeling like we have full access to our mental capacities, like we can communicate well, like we can listen well, like we don't need to advocate because we don't feel threatened. Um, but instead, we can just, uh, yeah, listen well. So um, the way that we actually get into our upstairs brain is what we call orienting to our environment. And uh, we do this through our senses. And so um, as humans, our brains are um, 
developed in such a way, unlike any other animal, that we can create models of reality in our own head, right? So we don't actually have to even be communicating with our partner to be frustrated with them. We can be at work and then remember something they did that made us mad, replay it, and get angry. Our amygdala can take over right then and there, right? And so this is what, um, this is, if you struggle with anxiety or panic attacks, um, you can, even if there's no external threat, we can actually create one in our minds because we can recall certain events and it can make us just as um, anxious. And so um, there's a uh, Dutch, yep, nope. Let's go with Dutch, doesn't matter what country he's from. <laughs> Bessel van der Kirk, that sounds like a Dutch name. Um, neurologist that went on safari in Africa and um, he noticed, uh, he was curious about something. He saw um, gazelles getting chased by lions every single day who didn't exhibit any symptoms of PTSD, which is strange, because if humans, we were chased by a lion every single day, we would exhibit symptoms of PTSD. So why is that? Why is it that uh, humans, uh, unique to humans is this symptom of PTSD, of feeling flustered even when there's no threat in, in the immediate vicinity? The only time animals are really traumatized is when we put them in cages and do that to them. But if they're left in the wild, they have their own resources to not always be in their amygdala, and why? So after, when a gazelle gets chased by a lion, and Disney style, they survive, everyone's safe, um, the, uh, the gazelle will uh, go into a safe place and it'll start orient to its in, orienting to in its environment, orienting to its environment by tapping into its senses. So I'm going to look, I don't see any lions, I'm going to smell. It doesn't smell like any lions. I'm going to listen. Don't hear any lions. There must not be any lions. And its nervous system is, it's forming, is informing its brain to go from its amygdala. They don't have a marginal gyrus, but it's equivalent in their minds, um, to back to its upstairs brain. So they don't exhibit any PTSD symptoms. So it turns out we as humans can use the same strategies to get out of, feeling, to get out of our amygdala, to get out of feeling frustrated, um, to get out of feeling angry, to get out of feeling anxious. So um, when we're working with clients who have um, a lot of anxiety, or maybe they even experience panic attacks, we'll tell them, get out of your head. Stop with the thought loop. Stop replaying the same thing over and over again and get into your environment. So look around the room, for, and it sounds silly, but look around the room and just notice five things. A light, a chair, glasses, water bottle, cell phone. Now... Um, touch four things, right? And we're just getting them into their environment, out of their brain that can replay the same anxiety-inducing behavior. And their nervous system is, is observing the environment and communicating to their brain, there's no threat here. You don't have to be afraid. We're cool. There's, it's safe. So today we're going to talk about three senses in our relationships that can help us get into our upstairs brain when we feel threatened, or when we feel hurt, or when we're angry. We're going to leave out taste and smell. Um, we're not going to be tasting our partner or smelling them. That, I don't know how that would go over in the middle of a fight. But we're going to talk about looking, really looking at our partner, touching our partner, and listening to our partner. We're going to use these three senses as a means of regulating our nervous system and communicating to our brain that there's no threat here. This gets us into our upstairs brain where we can empathize and listen and creatively come up with solutions and take the other person's perspective. So the first one we're going to look at 
is look, is sight. So uh, this is a picture of some trees. And um, I just want, we're going to take 20 seconds and just allow yourself to be curious about why those trees may be shaped the way they are. Any thoughts? Yes. Someone, what? Yeah. So maybe someone lives there? Yes. Constant winds. Yep, that's what I would say. So uh, it's interesting. We can look at a tree, and um, we can be curious, and it makes sense to us why it grew to be a certain way. And maybe there's some other trees that uh, maybe in order to reach the sun, it has to curve a certain way, or to get to a water source, it has to bend a certain way, right? We can look at those trees, and we, we have no problem really understanding why it may have grown to be a certain way. And the invitation here, and the struggle to do, is to be equally as curious when we look at our partners and why they've grown to be a certain way. Not from a stance of judgment, but at a stance, from a stance of curiosity. So me and my wife are arguing about me touching my cell phone. And if I would have really looked, and, and, and I was really frustrated, why are you, are you so uptight about me just grabbing my phone for five seconds? And if I would have looked, hard enough, I would have remembered that when my wife was 17, her boyfriend was in a motorcycle accident and passed away. So of course she's going to be sensitive on car rides. Of course she's grown this way to be more scared, to be more concerned, to want more of a sense of control in the car. Um, in Lamentations, there's a the author's kind of going on, so like, does anyone see this, what's happening to Jerusalem? Does anyone see what's happening to Israel? Does anyone see the suffering that we're in? And finally, God responds with, your wounds are as deep as the ocean. To be seen, to not um, have someone assume the worst in us, but to be seen for how we've developed, how we've grown, what caused that, non-judgmentally. We're all rational human beings who function as a means of self-preservation in a lot of ways. We're, we're all doing what we believe is most rational in the moment, even if you know, we would have done it differently and it wasn't the most effective. Each behavior, when taken into context, makes so much sense. And we have to see that. We have to look for that in our partner and believe the best in them. We can move on to the next slide, please. So the goal here in looking is curiosity, not judgment. So some statements and questions rooted in curiosity. Tell me more about that. Help me understand. Validation. That makes so much sense why now that I see that. 
makes so much sense why you feel that way. What's it like for you when I grab my phone and you're in the car? Brene Brown talks about um, the four traits of empathy. And um, there's four components when we want to empathize with people. She says it's um, non-judgment. Nope, that's the second one. Perspective taking is the first one. Non-judgment. Identifying emotions. And then communicating those emotions. If you find yourself struggling with empathy, follow those four steps. Perspective taking non-judgment, identifying the other's emotions, and then communicating those emotions. The invitation for me in that car that day was to look and empathize with my wife. We're all on a journey, people. I didn't quite do that. Getting better, I swear. So the next sense we're looking at is touch. Now, um, I'll say this, um, uh, if you find yourself in the neuroatypical category, if you're on the autism spectrum, then engaging in our senses can kind of be sensory overload. And so we just want to, um, um, we don't want to put anyone over threshold or overwhelm them. And so um, I would say we want, the, the, the goal for touch is safety for all of us. And for someone who may find themselves on the autism spectrum, um, the capacity to engage in touch might be lower or listening or anything. It's going to be sensory overload. So just um, accommodate that as you see fit. So with touch, the goal is safety. Um, touch, within, um, touch with another safe person probably uh, <sighs> builds resiliency more than any of our other senses. I think the reason, this is me talking, and there's not data here, but this is just my hypothesis. I think it's because it's also the most vulnerable as well. Um, you know, even if you think about how we greet each other, if you don't know anyone, you're not gonna touch them, but when you first meet someone, you give them a handshake, so it's like at distance, right? And then as you get to know them more, if you're a guy, maybe you do like the Christian bro hug where you have your forearm out and it's prepared for anything, or the Christian side hug if they're opposite gender, and I'm non-threatening. Hello. Um, and as you get more, right, you maybe you just move on to a standard hug. And as it gets more romantic, maybe the hands are around the waist or the neck, right? Just more increasingly vulnerable postures. And so touch is the most, uh, can be the most scary of the senses to engage with. And it can also, I think, be the most redemptive and, and kind of communicate like, oh, this is a safe place. This is a safe place. When we engage in safe touch, our brain releases oxytocin, which is a bonding chemical. Um, it builds security and confidence. Uh, we used to think that oxytocin was only released during um, sex, breastfeeding, childbirth, um, but now we're actually realizing that oxytocin is released uh, when parents wrestle with their kids, during hugs, um, hand-holding, um, all releases this chemical oxytocin, which is bonding and communicates safety. Well, sexual touch is certainly builds resiliency, and I think uh, builds connection. It's not only that. So hugs, holding hands, playing with hair, rubbing shoulders, kisses on the forehead, whatever else that communicates to your partner that you're a safe person um, is, is really helpful to build resiliency. 
There's a really cool study that was done, and um, they took middle school girls and uh, surprised them with a, uh, they had to give a three-minute impromptu public speech in front of their peers. And um, have any of you all seen Eighth Grade, the movie? It's a great movie. It's on Amazon Prime, but to get, get in the, the, mi- the, the life and mind of an eighth grader in today's society, um, it kind of makes you tenderhearted. Um, but uh, they hooked these girls up to fMRI scanners, and they um, measured the amount of cortisol in the brain, which kind of lets you know how stressed out an individual is. And they took two groups of girls. And um, one group, they, uh, um, they just said, go for it. And they, of course, fumbled their way through their speech, were really nervous. A lot of them couldn't finish. Um, and they were extremely stressed out. And then they took a second group, girls who did the same thing, except this group of girls got to hold hands with one of their best friends while they did it. And when they were able to hold hands with someone, what happened? They were more calm, they were more confident, they didn't release as much cortisol in their body, so they weren't as stressed out. They could communicate better just by holding hands with someone. So touch is very, very powerful. And there may be some um, seasons of, uh, of relationships where there's long periods of disconnect, right? Where we, um, maybe we're just in a, an extended fight we just can't find a solution to. And even in the middle of that, I would encourage um, moments of touch, whether that's hand-holding, hugs, that our relationship is bigger than just the fight that we're in, that we're going to get through this, right? So many couples I see, well, we're in a fight, so we're giving each other space. And, you know, your mileage may vary. I'm not, there's, there's no black and white rule to everything. Maybe that can be helpful. But I would also say, like, don't abandon um, healthy touch just because you may feel disconnected uh, in, in the moment. There's something bigger that's worth um, bonding over, that's worth protecting and, and touch. is a really, really, really powerful way to do that. So prioritize hugs, holding hands, playing with hair, rubbing shoulders, kissing the forehead. Um, actually, the, the moment that snapped me out of um, the argument um, my wife and I were in, um, when I got back from my, I had gone for a walk when we had gotten, gotten there, and I came back, and before I said anything, she just reached for my hand and held it. Um, oxytocin, I'm sure, flooded through my brain. Okay. So lastly, we're going to talk about listening. Uh, Stephen Covey, the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, said, most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. But when we engage with this sense, with our ears, we want to understand. That's the goal, to understand. So how do we listen well? Well, there's two skills that good listeners have. And even though I'm a therapist, I'm still learning to get better at these. Um, Reflecting and probing. Uh, Reflecting is paraphrasing back to the speaker what they said. And this is a difficult task, and it can feel robotic or forced at times, right? It's like, um, I'm really upset with you for being late to my parents' house for dinner. You're really upset with me for being late to your parents' house for dinner. It can feel uh, just robotic and forced to start. So it takes some practice, right? But I would just say if you can um, lean into that, even if it feels robotic or forced, 
Um, it communicates to the party that you are taking them seriously, that you're understanding things well. Um, I couldn't find the source of this, but one of my favorite quotes that I, I have a little chalkboard in my office that I write quotes on, and um, it says, listening is so close to love, sometimes you can hardly tell the difference. And um, in therapy, I, I feel like um, it's sad. You know, people can be, in, in 2019, can be very disconnected from their, in their community. And to have someone who just listens, I feel like that's sometimes 90% of my work that validating someone's voice, having them heard, can be really powerful. Probing is just asking for additional question, or, or, sorry, asking for additional information. Effective probing is non-judgmental and flows what was previously said. Good probing questions ask for elaboration, clarification, repetition. Can you tell me, the, can you tell me that again? What did you mean by that? I had a difficult time understanding this part. Will you explain that? Poor listeners, in contrast, are competitive. They listen only to identify errors in reasoning or logic, using their silence as a chance to prepare for their next response. So some of us um, can actually function fairly well out of our amygdala as far as what, uh, how it looks on the outside. Um, maybe we've just been blessed with a bigger, with a, a, a good vocabulary where we can be angry and communicate ourselves well, and that might be really beneficial for if you're a lawyer or you're in some high-stress job. But in the sense of a relationship, uh, I think you're actually a little bit behind because I think you can tend to be over-reliant on that capacity. Um, my dad is an attorney, and I, I remember like being a kid and being like, I feel like I know I'm right, but you can argue your case better, and I feel like you could argue my case better than I could. And if we just switch sides, like you, like, and I think some of, some of us have the ability to do that, and even though our minds may say, like, okay, I know I'm wrong here, but I can communicate, I can talk faster, or maybe I'm a, I'm a fighter, so I get more active in fights where my partner is more of a freezer, or a runner. I see some laughs and smiles around the room. And we really have to surrender that just because, just because we can talk well when we're flustered doesn't necessarily make us good listeners. And it's, it might, be even, you might even prohibit you from actually coming to the most um, grounded resolution that's best for you and your partner. So if I would have listened to my wife when she said, um, can I do it? If I would have seen that she grew this way because she had experienced a heartbreak when she was a teenager, what do you think I would have actually heard her saying when she asked to take the phone? What was she actually expressing? I feel scared, right? I don't feel safe. Help me feel safe again. But I heard, you're an incompetent moron who can't multitask. All on a journey. It's good. So with this last sense, we're going to practice this. 
Um, and uh, I was remiss. I meant to ask you at the very beginning, but I'm going to ask you now. To write, um, uh, we can just do this now. Um, is everyone, are we all paired up? You and me then. Um, so just write down maybe a, a conflict that you um, ha are having, have had, anticipate having with your spouse. Um, just write, you have a little handout, and just write that down at the top. Um, it, on a scale of 0 to 10, you don't have to go to a level 10 conflict if you don't want to. Um, this can be like a level 6 or a 5. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, the, the big thing you're working on. What did I miss? Okay. Uh, bad, bad idea. I'm, I'm creating a safe therapeutic environment here. We're all going to be okay. We can do hard things. Um, so just think of that. And then um, we're just going to go through this prompt by the Gottmans. John and Julie Gottman. Um, they're actually located here in San Diego, the Gottman Institute. And they're kind of foremost researchers on couples therapy. And they... Um, they came up with this blueprint for good listening. And uh, you can read through the steps yourself, but essentially what we're going to be doing is one person is going to share anything and everything about their perspective on this certain conflict that they want. Um, and they get to share, we'll do um, five minutes um, of sharing. Or if, you're, if, if it doesn't take that long, that's fine, but just kind of do your best to communicate what your perspective is, how it feels, um, anything you really want. And the listener's job is to sit there and listen, primarily. And you're going to do this by taking notes, writing things down. It gives the speaker the distinct feeling that what they're saying really matters. And you must delay talking about solutions or postpone any attempt to try to persuade the speaker. So you are allowed to ask questions after the speaker's done. You cannot communicate that you disagree by asking those questions. <laughs> Do you really think that's a good idea? It's not a question that we're going to ask here, right? The listener can't correct the partner's facts or express reactions to the speaker's view. The listener's job is simply to listen. When the speaker's completely finished, the listener restates the speaker's point of view. The speaker listens carefully and clarifies anything the listener didn't really seem to grasp. So you have full permission to say, no, no, that's not what I meant. Here's what I meant. And then the listener has to correct themselves. OK, you meant this, and go forward. So there is no persuasion happening here. We're not trying to solve any problem. We're just listening to understand. And then we're going to switch. And the speaker is going to become the listener. The listener is going to become the speaker. And we're going to do that as well. So take notes, ask questions, avoid persuasion or problem solving. I've got a lot of nervous faces, I see. You're going to do great. You're going to do great. Um, and uh, I'll, um, I'll time us. Um, it, if we have an odd, amount of, odd person, feel free to come up. I can help. Um, and... Uh, yeah, and I'll time us. I'll tell you when to switch. Um, and then we'll reconvene and chat about that experience.
So, uh, this is where the extroverts shine. Who, uh, <laughs> anyone want to share what that was like to be the listener? Uh, what it was like to be in a posture of just simply listening, um, taking notes, reflecting back. You're more than welcome to respond if you're an introvert. I didn't mean to send you deeper into it. Yes, sir. It wasn't until you could relate to it through uh, uh, one, of one of your own experiences. So it, it brought up something in your own life that you could relate to, empathize with, right? Find that kind of common connection with. Cool. That's great. Yes, sir. But you were such a good listener that you never even spoke once. You just did nothing but listen. I oh, got it. Good. We're all on a journey. We're all in process. It's good. Next time. I'm sure, that you, I'm sure you won't run out of opportunities to... Uh... It's problem solving. Oh. Yeah, when we're when we're in when we're flustered or we're in conflict, like it's like sometimes have you ever had someone like jump into your disequilibrium with just with like problem solving? Here's what you got to do. You got to you know. And it's like we don't need that yet. We don't need we need solidarity. We need understanding before we go into that. So you can do this even if you're not in conflict. Maybe just your partner is going through a tough time at work. Maybe something not even related to you. You can still participate in this and. Listen, reflect back, ask questions, clarify, things like that. Any other comments on the listening? Yes. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. We build that capacity over time. Um, even in like non-intimate relationships, uh, even with the clients. And the stereotypical thing is that like men like to problem solve, and you know, and we can jump to that first. Um, I think it probably is more true than not that we do. And even with my clients, at times, like I find myself like I jump too soon into that. Someone just really needed to be heard and listened to. And so we, a lot of us, have to unlearn that. Like it takes some unlearning things. Um, Oh, involved, right? So, yeah. What was it like to be the, uh, the speaker, knowing that um, ideally someone doesn't uh, interrupt you, that maybe you have time and space to organize your thoughts? Yes, sir. That's cool. Thanks, Chad. Yeah, I sort of felt like um, when my 
my gosh, I'm going to say this out loud. And it was like, you started to cross that threshold. Like sometimes um, I am normally kind of quiet for a lot of things because I don't want to say something that I'm going to regret. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that strong or anything, but but still, just it's sort of like a, taking a baby step to try to communicate. Uh-huh. And then one thing I noticed is sort of this, uh, well, I'm just doing my own thing. <laughs> so I don't want to get into, is there something, well, anyway, it's just basically we were talking at the end there, and, and she was like clarifying something. Oh. Oh. That's lovely. Yeah, you know, I uh, I think one of the some of those powerful couple sessions I'm able to have is when one partner realizes maybe after a long time of feeling disconnected, they still have the capacity to melt their partner, right? That they still, if they reach out in vulnerability, um, that their partner will still melt at their touch or at their compassion, right? And when we're in conflict, we kind of um, we can uh, forget that, that we are so influential in the lives of our partners and something like a touch on the knee. I saw some other lovely touching over there in the corner. It was just like, um, it was cool. Yes? Uh-huh. You know, it reduces the intensity, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it can be paradigm shifting to um, get out of our, I mean, essentially get out of our downstairs brain, right? Like to, to hear, in a, you know, you, you, didn't, you didn't experience potentially the intensity that eye contact it brings, right? Or just um, uh, a lot of us can be sensitive to facial expressions, right? Of just, and that, that can fluster us. That can kind of send us into disequilibrium. So uh, this exercise is great. Any, any other uh, last comments? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. This is good. We're growing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. What if you're more prone to one of those three and she's more prone to the other? Like, how do you, like, you know what I'm saying? In terms of, um... Like, conflict or resolution. Uh-huh. So... It's not natural for me to, like, listen, really. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So this felt great. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for that vulnerability. You know, I grew up um, uh, the middle child of five kids. And so, um, and my dad's an attorney who um, raised us all to like fight for our point well. And if you didn't get a word in, then you were going to lose. If you didn't advocate for yourself. And so um, listening for me is something that I've had to learn to do and continue to learn to do into my, pro into my profession. And um, I have to, uh, sometimes I have to uh, live videotape my sessions for my supervisor, and we kind of go over it. And it's amazing the things that she picks up on. And like, did you hear them say that? Like, no, I didn't. I wasn't. I was <laughs> thinking about something else. So I would say, like, how to advocate for how to get your needs met, I think, is a really healthy conversation to have, right? And so um, certainly it sounds like you've identified a growth area, which you can lean into and stuff. Um, how to get better on it. Um, I think Brené Brown has some wonderful stuff on listening. I think um, there's actually a book that just is called Listen. Um, it's great. Um, and um, yeah, asking for what you're, how to get your needs met in, in conflict, I think, is when you're, when you're outside of the conflict, right? It's like when we argue, here's how we can kind of fight fair, or here's um, what helps me stay regulated, I think is, is really helpful. So, yeah. Um, I just met Corey 15 minutes ago. Super, yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I have to Yeah. Could be good. Yeah, that's the strategy. Just pretend like you don't know who are you. I don't even know who you are. Mm -hmm. like so, uh, but I think just keeping the, the 
Y'all get to keep these, um, and you get to practice at home. Um, so, yeah, if you have any questions, I'm going to be around. Thank you so much. If you loved what I had to say, feel free to email me and let me know at matt at soulcarehouse.com. If you didn't like what I have to say, feel free to email me and let me know at mikeforrest at harborcitychurch.com. Um, but, yeah, thank you all. Y'all have been wonderful. Thank you. Yeah.